The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. If you have your Bible with you this morning, would you join me in Mark chapter 3? Mark chapter 3. We're going to be a little ambitious this morning and we're going to do our best to get from verse 7 down to verse 19. If you're our guest this morning, welcome. We're honored to have you, honored that you'd spend your Sunday with us. We hope you feel welcome here. Special welcome to Dr. Richardson and his, wife, his sweet wife, Miss Lou. It's good to have them. Yeah. Hugh is the uh, Director of Missions at the Shelby Baptist Association, a friend, a partner in ministry, a friend of our church, and um, we're grateful to have him with us this morning. Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 7. And Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. And the great crowd heard all that he was doing. They came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain. And he called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles. So that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach. And have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This morning in the text, we will see three types of people who are around Jesus. We see fans, we see foes, and we see followers. And just as it was the case in Jesus' day, the same is true Today for us, and every single one of us fall into one of these three categories. You're a fan, you're a foe, or you're a follower. You know, Jesus is the most famous person who's ever lived. There's never been another human being as famous as Jesus. No one in history has ever held the place like Jesus does. 
That's still true today. There's no one more famous. But this was also true, not just today, but it was also true in Jesus' day. Word of him had begun to spread like wildfire. Stories of his miraculous works and healings filled the countryside. So we, we, at our church, we work verse by verse through books of the Bible. We've been working through the, the gospel of Mark. And, and we've seen healings. But don't think for just a second that what we have recorded in the gospel of Mark or even in, in um, the four gospels together even begin to scratch the surface of all that Jesus did and Jesus said. There were, there were healings and miraculous works um, more numerous than we even have recorded. And word of all that Jesus is doing, especially in his, his ministry of miraculous works, even though that wasn't his primary ministry, his primary ministry was one of, of preaching the gospel, the kingdom of God. But word of his, his miracles had spread so much so that people had begun to travel great distances and there were great crowds that followed him. Mark says it this way in verse 7 and 8, that Jesus withdrew from his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Adumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. It's interesting these locations that are mentioned here by Mark. These are regions uh, in and around Galilee and they pretty much cover every direction that you could go from where Jesus is that it is representative of the entire region coming to be around to be near Jesus and they come to him in the hopes that they might touch him and that this man has a, a proven ability to heal and so they come hoping that that would be the case for them so Jesus, because of this great crowd, told his disciples, verse 9, to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. This word here for crowd, a great crowd, literally is, is this, this idea of, of a pressing or a crushing. They crush in on him because they had heard he had healed many so that all who had disease pressed around him to touch him. Now, I, I want you to get the picture here because I think for some of us, our idea of Jesus is, you know, a, a uh, lonely, isolated, long-haired, meek, mild-mannered man. And that he just sort of graciously travels through the countryside but that's not the image here. The image is men and women and children who are ill, who are feverish, who have diseases, who have ailments, who have come to him. Most commentators put this crowd in the tens of thousands of people. 
And they are pressing in on him. They are crushing in on him. Full of disease. Full of ailments. Hoping to get a piece of him. They followed him everywhere he went. But that did not make them his followers. These were people who would be considered fans. They may have been there simply for the entertainment factor. Remember, in Jesus' day, there was no internet. There was no YouTube. There was no video games. There was no movie theaters. There were not all the places where we find entertainment today. Probably not a whole lot going on. And so when word had spread of this man who's working miraculous wonders, they, they want to travel to see what's going on. I mean, crowds of tens of thousands of people are gathering together. They want to know, what is this? And so there certainly were those who were gathered there who were there simply for the entertainment. What was happening with this man Jesus filled the thoughts and the imaginations of these people. It was a spectacle. It was a spectacle. Mark uses this this language of a great crowd twice. In verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed him. And again, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. When you see repetition in God's word, it's there to bring emphasis to a point. Mark wants to emphasize to us the great size of this crowd. Jesus is a celebrity in his day. He's a celebrity and he is being followed sort of by what we would consider the paparazzi. People who want to get a glimpse of him, people who want to get a piece of him, people who want to see what this is all about. These are people who want their fix. They want their needs met. They want to touch him in the hopes that in touching him, their need might be met. This is that they wanted what they wanted, but they didn't want it to cost them very much. They were fans, not followers. They were fans. And this is still true today. And I believe that Simple fans of Jesus fill church pews on Sunday mornings. Yeah, they come and they sit and they listen. They might have a need that they hope Jesus can meet. But they aren't willing to let following Jesus cost them very much. They may feel that they have a certain reputation that they need to keep and it's beneficial for them to be aligned with uh, a church or to Christianity and so they come in order to keep it. There are some that come because they have a relationship or they want to have a relationship and they see being a part of a church is beneficial. There are some who come and fill church pews on Sunday mornings just because they want to keep the peace. There are those who have come because they believe the false theology that says that if you give to God, he is obligated to give back to you more than you gave to him. Fans. 
Fans want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not so close that it requires a sacrifice. A fan is an enthusiastic admirer. This is not what Jesus wants. This is not what Jesus requires. What Jesus wants and what Jesus requires are not fans, but followers. Jesus says it this way in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 25. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is perfectly clear that following after him will cost you. It will demand some level of sacrifice. You can be a fan and you can be close to him and you can sort of follow after him because it's beneficial to you or because it helps you or because it makes you feel good. But if you are going to be a real follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ, it will in some way, to some degree, cost you. If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. The implication there, and Jesus says it is, that to follow him means to lose your life. It may not be that you lose your life literally as a martyr, but it does mean that there will be some things in your life that you lose. That following him costs you. But to follow him and to lose your life means that you will, for his sake, find it. You see, here's where I think we get a little backwards. Because we equate together a decision and a commitment. But those are not the same things. There is a great difference between a decision and a commitment. Our churches are full of people who have made decisions but no commitment. They may be a raised a hand or walked an aisle or repeated a prayer. They made a decision. They made a confession. But there has been no commitment, no commitment to follow him, no denial of themselves, no willingness to suffer loss and to sacrifice. Church, these are fans, not followers. Maybe today you're just a fan. There were tens of thousands of fans. We also see in this text that there were foes. There were foes. We ended 
verse 6 last week with this striking statement. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So the, the pushback from the religious leaders of Jesus' day, as we saw last week, intensified greatly as the Pharisees went and sort of held counsel partner together with the Herodians. Now, this, this doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but this was pretty significant in Jesus' day. I mean, this, this is, um, at, at, at the sake of, of being overly political, and that is not my intention, but it is mostly just to make the point, this would be like a diehard Trump fan and a member of Antifa working together. These, these two groups of people hated each other, the Pharisees and the Herodians. So the Pharisees are the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They're the religious leaders of the Jews. And um, they, are, they are passionate about the restoration of Israel. And their passion for the restoration of Israel is manifested in their hatred for Rome. Because Rome has rule over the, the, the land. So they, they hate Rome. The Herodians are Jews. They're Hellenistic Jews. But they are Jews who are pro-Rome. They're pro-Herod the Great. They're pro-Herod Antipas. They like Rome and they're working on behalf of Rome. So you have Two groups of people, one that hate Rome and one that love Rome. And now, even in all of their differences, they're united together in one passion. And what is that? To see the destruction of Jesus. Jesus has got some foes. And the war is on. The war is on. This verse 6 is... Remarkable to speak to the sovereignty of God and the plan of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This is God doing the unthinkable in verse 6 of chapter 3 so that he could, by his grace, do the unthinkable. Send his son to the cross. Verse 11, and whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. The war is on. Not only are the Pharisees actively looking to destroy him, not only are the Herodians actively looking to destroy him, but the demonic world, the spiritual world has been upended. And when... These um, demon-possessed people, these unclean spirits come into the presence of Jesus. They are terrified because they know all too well his authority. They know who he is. They've known him from before creation. And so they would fall down before him and they would cry out, You are the Son of God. And Jesus would forbid them from from making this confession. Now, why is it that Jesus would forbid this confession? It's, this is, it's, a, it's a 
It's a difficult question to, to answer, and I believe Sinclair Ferguson gives one of the clearest um, understandings of why Jesus did this. And so I'd like to quote from him this morning. Here's what he writes. The cry of the demons was a cry of despair, not faith. It was uttered with malevolence and antagonism, not joy and loyalty. It was calculated to destroy Jesus' influence by suggesting that there was an association between him and those who recognized his identity. Jesus gets that accusation leveled against him, right? That he's working for the devil. That it's the spirit of Satan that's at work in him. And by these demons crying out and falling before him and crying out, you are the son of God. It's an attempt to tie his work to them. Because what Satan could not do through the Pharisees' rejection of Jesus' claims, he would try to do through the demons' recognition of them. And they would fall and they would make a confession that is true. Jesus, you are the son of God. Now, here's what's striking about this for me. Especially thinking in the terms of nominal Christianity that pervades our culture. Thinking in terms of a confession and not a commitment. Of a decision and not a commitment. These demon-possessed people were making a confession. Jesus, you are the Son of God. They're making a confession. There are countless people today who think that all it takes to be saved is to make a confession. But salvation is more than a confession. Because if salvation was just a confession, then these demons would be saved. This is James. You believe that God is one, you do well. So do the demons and they shudder. Here's the reality. You can believe all the right things and still not be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You can believe all the right things and never move from a fan to a follower or from a foe to a follower. Because a saving confession must be more than a recitation of truth. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 7 verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, then who will? Well, he tells us, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You see, Jesus tells us what it means to be a disciple. And we say it every week. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all 
that I have commanded you. Salvation comes from both a confession and a submission. It's not just that Jesus is Lord. It's what Jesus says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It is not just a confession that Jesus is Lord. It is the confession that Jesus is my Lord. It's a confession paired with a submission. It's a willingness to humble yourselves before the Lordship of Jesus Christ and to follow after Him in obedience. To be willing to give whatever it may cost to follow Him. This is what we see in this text. There are fans. There are foes. And then there are followers. Verse 13, and he went up on the mountain and he called to to him those he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles. Jesus sovereignly selected a small group of 12 men. Out of a crowd of tens of thousands, Jesus sovereignly chooses. I'll take you, and I'll take you, and I'll take you, and I'll take you, and I'll take you. Twelve men that he calls out to share his life in a special way. Twelve men. Now, this number twelve was purposeful. And it had significance to the Jews. It was a symbol of the fact that Jesus was building a new Israel out of the old. Now, Jesus himself tells us this. In Israel, there were 12 tribes. And now... Because he has the authority to do it. He's building a new Israel out of the old and he selects 12 men. And here's what he says to them in Luke 22, verses 28 through 30. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my father has assigned to me, a kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What Jesus is doing in his selection of these 12 men is he is making a statement, a statement of judgment on the unbelieving Jews as he chooses 12 men, none of whom came from the religious establishment to usher in the new Israel, to bring in the kingdom of God. These 12 men, and what a group of men they are. This is a group of men of great diversity. I'll just highlight one instance 
of such great diversity. They range from a tax collector named Matthew to a zealot named Simon. Now, a few weeks ago, we looked at what it meant to be a tax collector as we looked at Jesus' call of Matthew to follow him. A tax collector is one who um, works for themselves in collecting these, these customs taxes, but they're, they're collecting taxes on behalf of, behalf of Rome and giving to Rome the, the, the portion of the tax that they've pledged that they will take. So these are, these are people who are working for the Roman government, right? And so they're, they're, but to the Jews, they're hated for that. They're hated because there was a, a lot of, of thievery and robbery and they were unscrupulous in their business dealings um, and they worked for Rome. So the Jews disliked them. A zealot was a group of people who more than anybody else, hated Rome. And when I say they hated Rome, I mean they zealously, hence the name, hated Rome. It was common practice for a zealot to carry a dagger. And all the little guys said, okay, I'm listening now. Yeah, Carry a dagger so that if they got the chance... And they saw a Roman soldier. They could kill him. That's how much they hated Rome. And who does Jesus name? He names a tax collector. And a zealot. Talk about diversity. Church, it's a a hot topic today, diversity. And this is not a sermon on diversity. But what we see before us is real diversity. This is real diversity. Diversity. This is real unity. Because they now have a new shared identity that superseded all other identities. Their identity as a follower and a Jesus of Christ supersedes their previous identities. You know what we see right before us? We see the answer to the diversity problem. The gospel that changes our identities and creates real unity. What a group of men. Simon, always named first. Jesus changes his name to Peter. Which means rock. The one on which Christ builds his church. He's an impulsive man of action. Often speaking first and thinking second. I like to think when Jesus said, hey, get me a boat so we can get away from this crowd. That Simon was the one there standing at the shore with the oar. Ready to hit somebody to get them back. This is Simon. Then there was a set of brothers, James and John. And Jesus renames them the sons of thunder. These were hotheads. They were judgmental. James was martyred early 
in the history of the church. But John would be the last surviving of the 12 and would author five New Testament books. Then there was Andrew. He was Peter's brother. He had been a disciple of John the Baptist and began to follow Jesus early on. And he was found often being the one bringing people to Jesus. He brought his brother. History holds that Andrew died shortly after introducing the wife of a, of a governor to the gospel of Jesus. Introduces the gospel to this wife of a governor. She refuses to recant the gospel. And so the governor then, angered, has Andrew crucified on an X-shaped cross. And history holds that he hung there for two days preaching the gospel to anyone passing by until he died. Philip was from the same town as Peter and Andrew. He was thick-headed and it seems that he harbored doubt about who Jesus really was until after the resurrection. There was Bartholomew who also was named Nathaniel. He began following Jesus because of the influence of Peter. It was of him, Jesus said in John 1, Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Matthew, the tax collector. Thomas, the doubter. The doubter, Thomas. That's, how we, that's what we know most about Thomas, right? Thomas the doubter. But did you know history holds that Thomas is the one who took the gospel to India? Did you know he was martyred there in India because of his faith? There was Thaddeus, also called Judas, the son of James. We don't know much about him. There was Simon the Zealot, anti-Roman revolutionary. And there was Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. These are the men chosen by Jesus to be his disciple, to be his followers. These are the men who would become, with the exception of Judas Iscariot, these are the men who would become the foundation of the church. These are the men who will, in the end of days, sit in judgment over Israel. These are, borrowing the term, 12 ordinary men. Not chosen because of what they could do, but chosen because of what Jesus wanted to do through them. And Jesus called to them to be his disciples. To be his disciples. What does it mean to be a disciple? What are you to do? Well, there's three things Jesus tells us. 
And the first is Jesus calls them to be with him. Verse 13, and he went up on a mountain and he called to them, to him those he desired and they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named the apostles so that they might be with him. To be a disciple of Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus means that you are in relationship with Jesus. That there is a closeness, there is a deepness. There is a unity, there is a union, there is a communion between you and him. At a deeper level than just a fan. A follower is with him. A disciple is with him. And if we're called to be a disciple, if we're called to go and make disciples, we've got to know what we're called to be and we've got to know what we're called to make. And the number one thing we're called to is to be with him. And this relational aspect of discipleship comes before anything else. Just be with me. Just be with me. And while we cannot physically be in his presence as they were, we can be with him through his word. He is the word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who comes from the Father full of grace and truth. To be a disciple of Jesus means that you are with him relationally. In his word, through prayer, to be a disciple is to be with him. It's, it's relational. The second thing it is, is to preach. It's verbal. So that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. To be a disciple of Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus means that you are sent. You are sent. There are are no disciples of Jesus who are not sent. He called them to himself so that they could be with him and so that they could be sent out by him and for him to preach the gospel. And church, this, this is the pattern for all disciples. This is not just exclusive to these 12. It is not just exclusive to pastors or to preachers. This is the reality of every follower of Jesus Christ. You are called to be with him and you are called to be sent by him and for him to preach. How will they believe unless they've heard, Paul says. How will they hear unless someone tells them? And who will tell them unless they've been sent? If you're a follower of Jesus, if you claim to be a disciple of Jesus, then you have been sent by Jesus to proclaim the gospel. And that preaching may not manifest itself in this sort of atmosphere, but it does manifest itself in the proclamation of the gospel to those who need Jesus. What's a disciple called to do? They're called to be with him. That's relational. They're called to be sent out to preach. That's verbal. And then thirdly, they're called to demonstrate that the king has come. This is behavioral. Verse 15. 
and have authority to cast out demons. Jesus, because he is authoritative, that's been the theme of Mark, gives them the authority to go and to cast out demons. And so are there any of you that need to come and have your children's demons cast it out? No, I'm just kidding. Now, this one may look a little different for us. All the examples of exorcism of demons in the scriptures, we see it coming from this level of authority given specifically from Jesus to people. But don't get hung up on the, this casting out of demons, but understand and see that Jesus called them to be with him, to be sent out by him to preach, and to, as they go, show his authority. That's the point. To exercise, to show his authority. Right? And the same is true with us. What are we called? We are called ambassadors. We are sent by God to be his ambassadors, to be the one that go before to declare the king has come. And as an ambassador, you're called to live a different way. You're called to live as a person under authority, with authority. The call of a disciple is relational, it's verbal, and it's behavioral. And it's true for every single one of us. This is still what Jesus requires of his disciple. Church, here's what that means. That means if you're not with him in relationship, you're a fan. You're a fan. If you're not sent by him to preach the gospel, you're not a follower, you're a fan. If you're not actively living differently as a person under his authority, with his authority, you're a fan. You see, Jesus has called us to be both disciples and to make disciples. We have to know what that means. It means to be with him, it means to, to preach. It means to live in a manner that demonstrates that he has come and you are under his authority. Church, there are fans. There are foes. And there are followers. And the question for us today is which are you? Let's pray. God, thank you. That just as you were actively working... Jesus, just as you were actively working in your day to sovereignly call these 12 to come and to follow you, you are still actively working today to sovereignly call men and women and children to come and to follow you. To come and to be your disciples, to come and to be your followers. Jesus, may we not be simply fans. People who want all the benefits but aren't willing 
to make the sacrifices. God, help us not be a people who are marked simply by a confession, but a people who are marked by a commitment. God, may we look at these 12 that you called to see the the price that they paid to follow you. How this call on this day changed everything for them. The whole direction, the whole trajectory, the whole purpose, the whole plan of their life. From this moment forward to live for you, God, may that be true of us. May that be true of this church. We would willingly go and we would willingly give all that you require. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.